Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dean Stell, the Program Director of Wake Forest Innovations in the beautiful Wake Forest Innovation Quarter in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For Wake Forest, Dean manages its technology portfolio ranging from ideation, intellectual property protection, out-licensing, and post-license management. Dean has spent the bulk of his career contributing to the commercialization of academic SAGE technologies, thus making him successful in a broad range of areas. And with this impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Dean. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here today. To give our listeners a little bit of a feel about your background, why don't we um, talk about what led you to tech transfer? Okay. Well, thank you. I have grown up in the state of North Carolina. I grew up around the Charlotte area, and it had always had an interest in the medical field and went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I uh, went there and had a biology degree, and upon graduating, I was originally pre-med and didn't get into medical school due to oh, some no. C's in chemistry, which, you know, it happens. Yeah. And actually, it probably turns out for the best. But um, I worked in the clinical field in a clinical laboratory in Charlotte for a number of years, and when I got frustrated with, you know, that sort of world and, you know, making $7 an hour, Ooh. <laughs> I had to look at professional schools that might enhance my life a little bit. And that led me to Wake Forest, where I received my MBA. And between my first and second years of business school, you know, being a biology major in an MBA program, you're not always a great fit at the banks who are coming by and interviewing or the big consulting firms. Yeah. So when Wake Forest University School of Medicine came by looking for interns to work in their technology transfer office, I signed up for those interviews and won one of them and did that during the summer. And at the time that I uh, actually graduated, the two professionals I had worked with had both quit the week before I graduated. Oh, that was timely. And so they hired me to come in and be a consultant in the office. So I sat there and used a fire extinguisher on the problems of the summer <laughs> while they hired a proper, you know, adult supervisor for yeah, me. There you go. And that was, you know, that was over 20 years ago and I'm still here now. Wow. Um, it's changed a lot over the years, but the basic core of what we do is still the same as it was then. You know, we're looking for the interesting fruits that come from our faculty and staff and trying to connect them with commercial parties who can bring products to the market. Yeah. And do you have a particular specific mission statement that you guys follow? We do. Actually, it's funny. I don't have it right in front of me. It's, it's long and it has a lot of adjectives and adverbs <laughs> in it. Um, my vice president would probably kick me for not knowing it off the top Very of my head. Very lofty. But, you know, the, the basic idea is to, um, you know, translate as much of the research here that, as we can into products that benefit the public um, in an accessible way. And when we can get that to work, it's, it's you know, it's very rewarding, um, oh, both yeah. emotionally, reputationally, financially. And we've gotten to do a little bit of all of that over the last couple of decades. That's awesome. It was really neat today. I drove up from the, the Triangle and as I was coming off the highway and driving up here, it's really impressive that, you know, this whole Wake Forest Innovation Quarter, as you come up the hill, it's really, really impressive. Uh, tell people who haven't been here what, what exactly this quarter in, entails and involves. Well, the, the Wake Forest Innovation Quarter is really amazing. Um, as, as I think I mentioned, I started here in the late 90s. And for the first couple of years I was here, we worked in what was the original hospital building over at the medical school campus, you know, right by the hospital. And we moved to the downtown facility in 2004, uh, the winter of 2004. I remember it because I had just become a father at that point in my life. Oh, wow. Hey, I know. <laughs> it helps you date things. Yeah, at exactly. Least. And um, we moved into a building that was called One Technology Place, which was one of the first buildings here in the park. And it was the home to a company called Targaset that had spun out of R.J. Reynolds in 1999, I believe. And the 
university had bought one technology place for, I believe, $15 million. And part of the reason that the that purchase was made was so that they could secure Targacept as a tenant because it was very important to Wake Forest to keep Targacept as a large employer and a very visible spin out in the biotech community in, in what was then called, uh, I believe it was called the, P- I think it might've just been called the research park back then. I see. And it went through a period where it was called the Piedmont Triad Research Park. And so we were there in the same building with Targacept for, it was for several years. And during that time, there was groundbreaking for a building. It's called the Richard Dean Building for Biomedical Research, which is now the home for uh, the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, where uh, Dr. Tony Atala works. And they get a lot of um, publicity and bring a lot of benefits to the university. And so that building was a, you know, a brand new construction you know, from scratch. There was no oh, wow. re- rehabbing of a building. It was, it was not a cheap building. And we moved in there in probably 2008. And at that point, there still was not a ton of activity down here in the research park. There were a lot of these empty uh, tobacco buildings that had been old tobacco warehouses. And just the explosion over the last five or six years, um, there was a building called Biotech Place, which is right next to us. And that was rehabbed and maybe, I believe it was 2012 and reopened. I mean, it's just a gorgeous facility. It's really amazing when I drove up today and then there's the the park that's right next to this. And even... And even this building, it was a power plant, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, this building was the old RJR um, coal, you know, power production building, where I, you know, I guess they didn't want to buy power from the utilities, so they had a coal building made. And all of these buildings, including all the uh, old warehouses that now house the uh, Wake Forest University School of Medicine, some of the science components of the undergraduate campus, um, private entities like Inmar Corporation. They're all these old tobacco buildings that, you know, 20 years ago, there was just nothing down here. There wasn't even traffic or people. And now it's vibrant. There's this beautiful park. I can go on my lunch break and go to a food truck and sit on a bench and watch people play Frisbee golf with their dog. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's a really neat place to be. And it's been rewarding to watch it grow. Now, how many companies would you say do you have in here? I mean, there's obviously, I I saw uh, in the building across the street, uh, there's some lab space in there, some wet lab space, and it looks like some maybe some startups over there as well. It's somewhere on the order. I think the number that I see is usually around seventy companies, but it has it has grown from the stand, from the position where twenty years ago, I mean, we knew every single company that was down here because there were you know only five or six of them, and uh, many of them were spinouts from our own group that we had licensed the technology to. Now I meet. And and this is an amazing thing about the ecosystem down here is you meet people who are with companies that have 15 employees and I never even heard of them before. Oh, wow. And they're doing something neat and innovative and, you know, hiring Wake Forest graduates and, you know, providing business to the restaurants and whatnot down here. So it really is fun when it grows beyond the ability of a person to just kind of keep it straight in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Tell us a little bit about your office here in, in this old power plant building. It's, it's quite uh, quite an impressive looking office. Yeah. Well, thank you. Our office is structured pretty similarly to probably most technology commercialization offices. We use a, um, as I think it gets called in technology transfer speak, it's called a cradle to grave type organization system. Sure. It's kind of a it's kind of an odd term that we use. Um, and yeah, cradles and graves are kind of relative. You know, our grave is, you know, I guess the company's cradle. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. But, um, you know, it just means that we have a team of professionals here. There are about five of us who are kind of case managers in the office. And they really do everything from getting the inventions from the faculty to evaluating them to working with patent attorneys, the licensing and the post-licensing management. You guys have your hands full. Well, it's we've had other systems in the past. We actually, we spent the last six or seven years experimenting with trying to do things in a more matrix fashion sure. with having specialists in different areas. And we found it was just challenging with the, um, just the handoffs and it sometimes would exceed the ability to really manage the process Yeah, because it was never really clear where one person's job began and the other person's job stopped. So that, and there are drawbacks to the uh, single person case manager system just because you can get people overloaded. Um, you know, cases yeah. are usually not distributed equally. 
I would imagine, yeah, that that's a, a it, juggling process. Well, and you know, when you've been here 20 years, you tend to accumulate. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have cases that never die and projects that yeah, never die. Yeah, you do. That just, you know, they kind of go on forever. And, but that's kind of the nature of the business. Yeah. I tend to call those like Lazarus projects. They yeah. always come back from the dead type of thing. Yeah. So it's like, there it is again. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Baidol. You know, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Baidol Act. And what would you say, in your opinion, was um, the impact that it's had on innovation in the U.S.? And, and particularly, would you say for universities in general and, and maybe even for Wake Forest? Well, I mean, I guess I, selfishly, I'd say it's probably the reason I have a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you you wonder, like, what would you be doing differently? Um, I mean, I think the, you know, the impact has been tremendous. I know our professional organizations always pull statistics and, you know, I, I tend to not look at them too closely. But um, there are, you know, bureaucratic things that you have to do with Baidol with invention reporting and, you know, those sorts of compliance things. Compliance type and of things, compliance, yeah. but. I can't imagine how it would work, you know, if it were different. Um, and, you know, and the, the, all the uh, granting agencies, especially the NIH, have, you know, they have outstanding tech transfer offices to handle all the intramural research that they do. But I, it would just be a very different world if they also had all the research that was being done everywhere else. And, and you know, I mean, I know they have the statistics from the 70s that show that they weren't licensing a lot of those patents out. Um, you know, obviously the world has changed and practices have changed. So, but you know, it's certainly more fun and vibrant if we get to own it. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. How about changes in Baidol? Are there any in particular you'd like to see made to the act or how about any other law or policy that you think might facilitate, um, or help the university tech transfer offices move forward? Nothing that would be really material to it. Um, you know, the main way that we interact with Baidol, it's mostly from the, you know, the reporting, the electing title, and all that interaction with the databases. I mean, most of that, it, it's more that it just could, it could stand to be streamlined a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the iAdison system, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, the, where, I mean, we run it, you know, this is getting into the weeds, but where we encounter it the most as case managers is, you know, we have the whole uh, post-grant area here at the institution where when they're wrapping up a grant, they have to check a box, you know, did you have any inventions? Yep. And a lot of our faculty will check that box and they can't remember if the invention was reported for the grant that they're closing down or some other grant. And that makes two databases at the NIH not match up. And then, you know, we get pinged. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it, it's not really a bad thing. It's just harmonizing databases and yeah, I know sometimes those error messages or reminder messages drive people a little bit yeah. bonkers. But, you know, I mean, they also give us an awful lot of money, so it's really hard to complain too much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about patents and maybe the dreaded patent litigation that, you know, no one is a particular fan of patent litigation except for patent litigators. But um, let's first talk a little bit about the patenting process and AIA did... Um, how did that affect your office's approach to the patent process? I don't know that AIA has affected us that much. Every once in a while, we're mindful of an invention that has been disclosed to us where we don't feel a particular urgency to file. And, and I, sometimes I wonder if it was just because I was trained pre-AIA. And someone has to remind me that, you know, we're in a first-to-file world now, not first-to-invent world. Yeah. And it's not that common. The work that's being done here is is a lot of times way out on the cutting edge and very narrowly focused areas. And so it's not that common that there's somebody else out there just out competing with you and they get in in front of you with work they legitimately did themselves. So it doesn't hit us that much. Um, we do worry about some of the things related to litigation, like IPRs. We worry about that a lot. Have you had any yet? or We have not. Um, we have had some third-party submissions t uh, against um, patents and uh, prosecution. prosecution yeah. um, not a lot of those. I, I mean, I don't think that's a very popular strategy. I've seen it myself just a handful of times and with mixed results, and I've used it a few times. I, I agree with you. It's not overly yeah. a popular uh, yeah. type of procedure. So. Yeah. I mean, we kind of saw it, and we, we you kind of suspect who probably sent those references in. Because the, you know, a lot of times they're not even good references. <laughs> so. No, no, not at all. Yeah, it, you can usually, I agree with you, figure out who the party was that was right. submitting them. But with IPRs, we do worry about those a lot. 
especially when it comes to patent enforcement. Like most technology commercialization offices, we occasionally get approached by, you know, patent enforcement groups. Sure. And, you know, there are a lot of patents in certain industries that it's likely that they're being infringed by somebody. But IPRs do make that a challenging process because you suspect that as soon as those patents are presented to a potential licensee that you're just going to, you're going to get a re-exam. Right. And I think the other ones that I'm hearing universities express concern about is the PGRs, you know, essentially like the opposition type of procedure that we now have is that you can't, you know, see coming. Maybe if you're going to license something out to somebody, you might see um, a potential IPR, but PGR could be from anybody at any time and within that nine month from issuance. So yeah, but the, the thing we haven't seen that I know we worried about is we worried about a world where every time we did a license, we also were dealing with an IPR. And, and that hasn't happened. Has not happened. Oh, that's good news. And I suspect it's probably because most of our licenses are in the um, more the biological and pharma side of healthcare. Right. And, you know, those companies see patents as a huge, tremendous asset. Yeah, they're not going to challenge those. It, yeah. it, for them, there's value in taking the license and using it as a sword against someone else. So, yeah, they're they're not going to, you know, it's not like the mechanical or the electrical yeah. field where that might be the circumstances you'd yeah. get an IPR. Yeah, I mean, I always suspect that a lot of the companies in, say, some of those electrical fields, they almost probably wish the patents didn't exist. Oh, yeah. You know? and Definitely. So it's, Telecommunications, this, things like that, for sure. And, and a biotech company... Of course, when you present them with a patent that's maybe right in the middle of something they want to do, they probably have the human reaction to say, oh, no. But then they realize that once they license it, it's an asset for their company. It protects them. Exactly. And if they can get an exclusive license with yeah. a good deal. And, you know, IPRs aren't always necessarily very cheap, depending if you end up at the federal circuit and, and what happens. So Sometimes it just factors into negotiation, too. I also feel like the patent office is doing a much better job nowadays than they used to with just the quality of patent. I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like they're awfully stingy with the types of claims that we can get. I hear that a lot, especially from some clients coming in from overseas. They're complaining they get much broader claims in Europe than they do the oh, U.S. Yeah, we yeah. get that a lot. Too. Yeah. And faster now, too, a lot of times. Yes. Um, but the reaction a lot of times is when we get a, a window into allowable claims. It's like, that's it. You know, compared to the old days where we would all get first action allowances from time to time, you're like, really? Cool. Yeah. Um, and that just never happens anymore. No, it's pretty rare. It's a, just in a few technologies, maybe like plant patents and things like that, but very rare in this day and age. Yeah. So between that and the fact that um, yeah, there is that whole body of, you know, 2000s era patents that are going to would have problems with the Alice ruling. If I was going to ask you about 101. If, has that affected you much? I think for a lot of universities, yeah. diagnostics, especially here yeah. at Wake, where you guys have a medical school, and I would think a lot Correct. of diagnostics that you know, subject matter eligibility is a huge issue for yeah, you. Yeah, we've, we've gotten to where, I mean, I think we've gotten to a point where we know what the examiners will tend to allow now. Although sometimes you get into a situation where you have a, your diagnostic method that you're doing, and you can't tie it to a treatment step because in some cases there's not an obvious treatment step. Exactly. And that's the whole problem. And that's where you get stuck. In yeah, and then you're stuck. Yeah. Um, and then you worry a little bit when you do have a treatment step because the patent office will probably not let you just say a treatment step. They'll make you say like a mammogram or something. It has specific. to be a specific type of treatment rather than something right. general. And how long will that treatment or that next step, how long will that be there? Will it go away in five to 10 years? But, you know, such are patents. Are you having any luck licensing some of the patents you are getting in the diagnostic space? We are. Um, That's good to hear. I mean, it's not as much as we would like. The big impact is that, you know, I mean, almost nobody will pay any significant money up front for any of these patents because they want to see them issued. So that issue plus how long it takes for these things to issue sometimes. I mean, you know, sometimes we're talking about like 10, 11, 12 years. It's very challenging in this particular space for diagnostics. And and it's had a huge impact too on when you dig into the licenses about what licensees are willing to pay a royalty on. Sometimes the products will hit the market while the patents are still pending. 
And in the old days, there would just be a definition of valid claims and the license. I think ever, probably most of your listeners are familiar with and it just said issued or pending. Correct. Period. Yeah, that was pretty, that's pretty standard. And yeah. now a lot of those licenses end up where, and I don't feel like the industry has really come up with a standard cocktail for that. Like we have with royalty stacking where there's like two or three ways to do it and they're right. all kind of generally accepted. I would agree with that. Yeah. And so it's like anytime that's an issue, it's going to be almost a custom creation of, you know, how many years has been pending since the priority date or how many total years pending, or are they claims that have been substantially, you know, finally rejected and then refiled, yeah. <laughs> you know, or it's different if it's on appeal. Um, so. I mean, it's interesting because I do enjoy the craft of that part of the negotiation and finding a you know a win-win without having kind of like a, a roadmap for how to get there. But it's not always fast. No, it definitely, definitely is not fast. And, and what about litigation? Have you guys had much litigation? Some offices have yeah. and are very active in enforcing their patents and had litigation. Um, some have not. Right. How about for you um, guys? We have. Um, and and this is all stuff that your listeners could could Google. Wake Forest had a really a blockbuster wound heal, healing product called the VAC that was licensed to a company called Kinetic Concepts from the mid nineties until about two thousand ten ish, and that that was the subject of a lot of patent litigation, both by third parties who were coming in and that were having to be sued for infringement, and eventually um, us and Kinetic Concepts you know, engaged in loggerheads on that same issue. And it was, you know, without getting into any of the, you know, the details or anything, it's just very eye-opening in your organization when you do have to go through document discovery <laughs> and you get subpoenaed for, you know, it's, it's everything. And, you know, it's every email, it's every memo. It's pretty rough, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and it's also really eye-opening for people who maybe say they want to be a lawyer um, when you see one of your lawyers come into town and they're basically doing document review in your back office for months. Days and days and, this, <laughs> and months and, and months. This was yeah. a long time. And yeah, occasionally they come out and ask you, you know, did you write a memo? I'm like, yes, I did. <laughs> so it's just really eye-opening. And I think it, once your organization has been through that, it probably turns everybody into a better email writer. Exactly. And once uh, your emails start to get scrutinized and it's even that way. I, I mean, I've been... Um, deposed in patent litigation previously. And it's amazing how every comma and every word that you put in an amendment or a response, or like you said, an email gets scrutinized. So it really, uh, it's a good experience as painful as it is to go through at least once in your career, because it does make you think more carefully and draft with a little bit more thought than maybe you would otherwise. Well, and what was really eye-opening about that one is, um, Early on in that product's life cycle, we tried to do some, we, we actually paid a consultant to come in and project like how much money did we think we could make over time? Because, you know, we'd get approached by royalty buyout companies and we just wanted to know what the impact on our organization would be. Or somebody showed up with, 50, and this product sold $2.3 billion a year, I think, at its wow. peak. And we were getting licensing revenues at the peak in the 90 to $100 million a year That's range. a lot of money. So, you know, it was, if a royalty buyout company showed up with a, with a big check in hand, like how big should we want that check to be? So it was a normal thing to look at. And I remember they had multiple projections. They had kind of like a low case, a worst case scenario. They had a medium, they had a high, and then they looked at all of them with and without, you know, patent litigation, or not, they didn't say patent litigation, but with and without competition was the way I think they put it. And it was just really interesting because when you think about it, if you hit the best case scenario, you're going to have a really hard time not having that competition there, whether it's legal or not. Exactly. Um, because eventually the, the, you just, the reward is there and it's big enough that people are going to take a shot at it. And it, it's also really eye-opening when you go through that litigation, when you are the owner of a patent that's licensed on a royalty-bearing product, you can only go backwards from there. Yep, exactly. You, know, you will never go through any sort of court proceeding. And win means that you get to stay where you are for another day. And it could all come tumbling down, down. you yeah. know, in an instant. And now it can come down tumbling down even sooner given the IPR system and, yeah. and PGR system. So, yeah. so um, it's, I, I mean, it's really just changed how patents function. And it's one of the things we talk about in our group a lot is that, you know, in the nineties, you would have some of these, you know, early and mid nineties patents that were just really broad. And, oh, it's crazy. Some of them. Yeah. And 
you know, in a lot of cases, when we would license those, you didn't even have to talk about the science. You know, it was a patent and it covered what somebody wanted to do and it was a financial transaction. And now the patents are so narrow that you really have to look at other forms of intellectual property like data sets and know-how and trade secrets and things that the faculty member will not publish um, or are willing to not publish. And that's where the bulk of your value comes because, you know, the patent may not even have good claims or it may have an IPR. But if you've locked in on pieces of a data set that the company needs to put in their FDA submission, you know, in some ways that's as locked. Actually, that can be locked in for even longer than the life of a patent. I've actually seen instances where the patent didn't cover the product, but there was a a know-how provision and royalties due on know-how, which actually kind of saved the day for the university. So Right. And we tried to, I mean, I will attempt to have know-how be a part of every license we do. And the, the, just the nature of know-how has changed. It's, it's now, it's a lot more specific. You know, we have a, actually it's a deal I'm working on right now where I have the faculty member writing a specific description of the know-how that's distinct from the invention disclosure. Cause it's almost going to be a negotiated document that's attached to the license. Interesting. Are there other challenges with licensing know-how that you've found other than getting more specific? Well, know-how is tricky because you have the um, the part of it that's very tangible where it's written down. At, at, like I said, if it's going to be an appendix on a license agreement, it's the know-how is this. It's appendix A. It's whatever it says there. But there's also a part of know-how that's more amorphous and ephemeral and that's covering things like if our if our inventor sends you a chart and you want to use it in your FDA submission, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Just use it. Exactly. But a lot of times nobody is bothering to document all that stuff. And so that sort of duality of know-how makes it very difficult to license exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. Because for a couple of reasons, one, I mean, we don't have perfect knowledge over everything the organization is doing. We might be working with one inventor is work especially in the cl- on the clinical side you could be working with one surgeon who's doing the procedure but there might be five others who are doing the same basic procedure and have the same basic knowledge and so you just want to be careful that you're not cutting off another inventor or faculty members you know right to be an innovator by doing a deal with one person exclusively. Yeah, this that must be a challenge to kind of keep track of all those. Have you had any luck in trying and success in managing that or still working it out? What we typically do is we just make the license to know-how be non-exclusive. The patents are exclusive, the know-how is not. And there's sometimes a little bit of pushback on that concept, but usually when we explain just the... You know, this is just a reality in an academic environment. I did do a know-how license once, once upon a time, and it didn't cause like a huge problem, but it did prevent us from doing another deal. Interesting. Just because there was a bit of the know-how that was useful in another field. Ah, okay. Yeah, and that's it, where and, you could run into a problem. And, you know, and a lot of this knowledge, you know, like if you know how to, you know, if it's treating cancer, it probably also has ties to diagnosing cancer. And you probably want to preserve the flexibility to do both. And it's one of those little lessons about how, um, you know, the reason that Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center or Wake Forest School of Medicine or Wake Forest University are here, I mean, they're not here to do technology commercialization. You know, we're here to do research education and patient care. And I like to say sometimes we're sort of like the byproduct. <laughs> you know, like the, it's a good the, way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, you know, like the butcher is there to sell meat. You know, and then, <laughs> Never you know, the, thought of it that way. And yeah, the meat is that's the publications, the grants, the students, and then. But you know, every butcher you know also has skins and bones and all that stuff, and that's kind of the byproduct that we work with. And sometimes you have a really neat skin, you know. But <laughs> exactly. You know, but you wouldn't want the butcher to be going really slow skinning all the pigs. Um, just to have perfect skins, because that, that's not why they're there. No, definitely not. So, <laughs> well, you've done a lot of licensing. You've been here a long time. And if you were to reflect back on some of your past licensing transactions, do you have any thoughts on anything you might have done differently with the value of hindsight? Probably the big one, and certainly um, colleagues of mine in the office who have come behind me on deals will tell you I make things a little too complicated a lot of times. <laughs> And there are some where almost I'll look at them myself five years later and just go like, oh my God, you know. What was I thinking? Yeah, what was I thinking? 
But I mean, a lot of times, all those complex sections, they were ways to bridge a problem. Can you give an example of the complexity that you're talking about? Sometimes it will come into, one good example would be when we're licensing future rights, which I think is something that we should be able to do. Because for one thing, it enhances the value of the deal. Yeah. And for another, it's really something that our partners need. They need that stuff that's going to happen, you know, in the next year. And what you, but what you want to do is you want to control it in a way that it's not expanding the scope of what they license from you. Exactly. And that, that can be very tricky. Yeah. Very, very tricky. So, so sometimes, I mean, I've ended up writing eight and 10 page sections about the different types of future inventions. And if there is a dispute about whether it is an improvement, there will be a committee made up of three people, you know, nominated as follows, you know. Well, that's an interesting way to solve that problem. Yeah. Well, the committees have never actually met. <laughs> and <laughs> Haven't when, had to get that far, huh? Yeah, when you go look at those later, you do kind of think like, geez, I spent a lot of time on that. But, you know, the, the, the one thing I would say about those really complex things is when you have to dig in with your partner and solve a mutual problem at that level, you build an awful lot of rapport. I would say so. You would have spent a lot of time with yeah. them. By that point, and where sometimes you're that makes the dispute almost not matter. Yeah, they just want to make sure that there's a mechanism in place that if there is a disagreement, you guys have an amicable kind of agreed yeah, upon solution. And, and sometimes work. it's just that they're like, you know, if push comes to shove here, we try. When you've been here 22 years, they start to trust that you probably well, will be here when they have a problem, <laughs> and they they know that you'll try to work with them because all of our successful licenses get amended. Oh yeah, probably multiple times. That's always been my experience too. And especially I've worked with a lot of startups and it's inevitable that there's at least three, four, five. I mean, the sky, the the world never looks the way you thought it would. And a lot of times just the sky wasn't as blue. And, (laughs) but um, actually we, uh, we brought in a new vice president named Todd Ponzio in July over the uh, July of 2019. And when he, he used to do tech transfer for the Navy and they actually commissioned a number of studies that they've been publishing on, you know, success, how many times successful licenses are amended versus unsuccessful licenses. And, you know, they found statistically significant differences in the two. Wow. Interesting. That'd be an interesting paper study to read. Right. I mean, it's interesting because it's data driven. Definitely. And, you know, I, I tend to do a lot of things by, you know, the seat of my pants. And, you know, <laughs> but it is neat when you see data kind of line up with what you suspected. Especially when someone else does the hard work to gather exactly. the data. It sounds like uh, Navy was doing quite a bit of hard work there. How about some of your office's biggest success stories? I mean, I think you've talked about, I think, one that was yeah. in some litigation, but I'm, I'm sure you've had more than that. Sure. I mean, we've had a number. One thing that was invented here, there was a whole field, and, and this, this is an older technology. It was called virtual colonoscopy. And it was invented here in the mid-90s by a gentleman who just realized that people didn't like having colonoscopies done. No. And so they learned fun. a way to do them with a CT scanner. So that was a pretty successful one. We've had a number, a lot of successful medical devices. Um, there's been families of spinal implants that are, have been continuously on the market since the late 90s oh, through impressive. to today yeah. um, through multiple generations. And it's turned into, with um, our partner there, it's turned into more of a um, almost kind of like co-development sort of deal Neat. rather yeah. than a patented license. It, it's like, you know, working together on a problem to make make a solution. Is that for people who have disc problems yeah. and things like that? that yeah, it's it, like when it you have to have your disc taken out and have two, you know, it's a procedure that, you know, a lot of people need. Unfortunately, um, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, people have a lot of disc problems. Lots of surgical tools and things of that nature. We've we've never really had a drug or a therapeutic hit big, which I think is just the law of averages on those. I think that's right, yeah, based on what I've seen at other universities. I mean, eventually you'll get one or a vaccine or, yeah. you know, a, a lot of universities are working on biologics right now, and, and those, I think, are even harder than yeah. the, the small molecules. But Well, the, um, well it's interesting because um, from time to time we get asked to do um, valuation exercises on our deals. And they're interesting because, you know, I went to business school, so I'm excited. It's like, woo, you know, I get to do a valuation. And, you know, maybe in another world I went into that line of work and I became really good at it. But now I just kind of remember the <laughs> principles. 
And so I'll set up this really complex Monte Carlo simulation of all the things that could go bad with probabilities. And, and what's interesting is you, a lot of times you end up with a net present value that a lot of times is pretty positive. Right. Yep. But you can also run 10,000 simulations of that and see that it's worth zero 98% <laughs> of the time. And one of the things here at Wake Forest is we're, we're very medium sized. You know, we're not gigantic. We're around 200 billion in research and, you know, just for comparison, because we're in North Carolina, both UNC, NC State, and Duke are all at least three times as big as we are. Yeah. And so, you know, to overcome that 98% failure rate, you just need more opportunities. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, just, you have to keep rolling the dice. We do have a lot of things that are in the queue right now um, that I think look really promising, but, uh, you know, time will tell. Are they still in the medical device space or are they kind of spread well, all over? Well, we have a number of devices and devices, well, devices are a lot harder than they used to be just because, uh, you know, reimbursement is a lot different. It's a big challenge. It's a big issue, reimbursement. Right. Yeah. But we can still get a lot of those out, out there. And where our neat devices tend to come from is when you're working with surgeons or other interventionalists who are doing new procedures. And they're doing the new procedure and they realize that the existing tools just aren't adequate. And if those surgeons are trained and know who we are and know how patents work, they'll come to us right away and say, and a lot of times their solution to the problem is, it may not be exactly right, but they've definitely identified the problem. And that's much easier to craft a story and and write a patent around and get something patentable than maybe like a biologic or a method or a diagnostic product. So that's the thing. Right. And it's one of those things where a lot of times when they're there, Sometimes they don't have what the invention will be in hand yet, but it's important to move really quickly because the rest of the field might just be six months behind them. Right. That's where you have to keep in mind the first to file yes, uh, versus exactly. first to invent because that's where medical devices in particular can get burned pretty right. easily. Right. Because, you know, your surgeon might be the world leader, but, you know, the rest of the field is, you know, the number two person is a month behind him or her. Absolutely. And, and so you got to go quick. Yeah. And hope that that maybe the number two person doesn't know where their technology commercialization office is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, How about some of the challenges that your office is facing? What would you say maybe your top two challenges are? I mean, the the main one, it's it's always a mission is always a problem for technology commercialization offices. Because, you know, these offices and we've we've been like this over the decades Sometimes it's about the money and sometimes it's not about the money, but then it's about the money again. You know, they'll, you get it's always told, about the money. You get told for five or six years that it's not about the money. And then somebody looks at your number, you know, leadership rotates and then they want to know why your numbers aren't as good. That's always like just the eternal struggle. And, you know, the solution is just to try to do both excellent service to your faculty and try to make a little bit of money. So that's always one, you know, finding and retaining outstanding staff is another. Yeah, that always seems to be a struggle for tech transfer offices. Right. I mean, it's just, it's hard to hire, you know, people who can come in and just hit the ground running just because tech transfer is just a unique beast. And often, even if you've done it in in another organization, it may be different here. Yeah, the offices, in my experience, are just so very different depending on where you're at. And, you know, not... The size of the office is an issue, the where in the country you're at, and, you know, right. obviously what technologies you're dealing right. with. So, And so that's always an issue. And then, you know, once you have them trained, you know, how do you keep them? A lot of times the best way to keep them is make sure their spouse has a job in the area or that, you know, their kids <laughs> are in school. Right by the university. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, those are the two big ones because, you you know, you realize that anytime you think, you're in a meeting with one of your colleagues and you just think like, man, it would be rough if that person quit. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know that they probably have, you know, everyone here probably has the capability to go somewhere else if they really want to. Yeah. I think it's a question, are you able to uproot yourself and your family and go right. somewhere else? And, right. and that I think is all probably ultimately what that always boils down to. Switching gears yeah. a little bit, let's talk a little bit about women inventors and entrepreneurs. Uh, that's a really important topic that um, I know even Congress has been looking into, you know, do you guys have any programs that encourage or assist women inventors, women entrepreneurs? We don't have a formal program. Um, One of the problems with any sort of program that comes out of the technology commercialization office 
is that we usually have a hard time maintaining stability for long enough for those programs to matter. Like, you know, some places have, you know, like inventor of the year. And what happens is you have to give inventor of the year to a couple of politically connected faculty for the first three years. And by the fourth year, you do it the normal way. And then you have a leadership transition. You're not doing inventor of the year anymore. Right. So I think I tend to think most of those programs work better at the, you know, the big organizational level. And Wake Forest does have a lot of programs to recognize excellence in our, our uh, women faculty, but it's in a bit of a more of a holistic way where it's looking at you know, their excellence as researchers, educators, clinicians, and innovators. Do you see many women startups? More than we used to. Okay. Um, and, which makes me really happy. I mean, as a, as a father of daughters, um, it makes me really tickled. And what we try to do with it, with it in our group is we try to make sure that it is something that everyone in our group is aware of. That you know, that when you notice it, especially when you deal with maybe a very senior female researcher. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes I'll notice, you know, they might have a little bit more. Their shields might be up a little bit more. And but I also think about just some of the crap they probably have had to put up with in their career. Yeah. And you know, it's like you know, I mean, they're not going to get that from us. Um, but just to you know, make sure everyone in your group is aware that you know they do not have the same work environment, same expectations, same stereotypes put upon them, and that we should be sensitive to that. Do you see any issues in terms of? Getting funding, VC funding with women started startups versus I have I have not, but I I don't know that my sample size is good enough to really draw a conclusion from that. I could certainly see that potentially being a problem in some cases. Yeah, sadly, sadly, unfortunately, that's I was curious. But I mean, I've also seen um, I've seen startups do all manner of things to try to make themselves more presentable. Exactly. You know, there are some startups where like I would look great as, you know, middle-aged white guy, (laughs) you know, it'd be fine. And there would be others where they probably would think I'm not a qualified CEO and (laughs) probably want somebody who looks different than me. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. How about uh, switching gears again to the role of certain organizations, you know, things like Autumn, NACWA, do you think those things have add value or what's your view on some of those? I think they do. You know, I mean, they, and actually, um, the uh, CEO of Autumn is a guy named Steve Sasalka, who's, um, he's a former colleague of mine here in the office. So you know, I have to say nice things about <laughs> Steve, of course. But um, actually, I mean, Autumn serves a really vital role. It has a couple of different missions. I think the, uh, the education mission is probably less than it used to be. Just with the internet and webinars and all that kind of stuff, you can get really timely information pretty fast now. But, it, but you can't beat the, uh, the ability to network with your peers when, you know, we get odd inventions for us that are just, you know, would be the norm at, say, like NC State. And I can pick those folks up and call them on the phone and say, what do you do with this, you know, that's, you know, related to, you know, cows or something that I know nothing about. <laughs> but, they'll, but they'll tell me, and part of the reason they'll tell me is because we've hung out and gotten to know each other at autumn meetings, and they know that they can tell me things and I'm not going to abuse the information. Right. I'm not going to, you know, like not really betray sources, but you know what I mean, deal with the information in a thoughtful manner. Yeah, it's been amazing to me to watch Autumn grow over the years. Some of the early Autumn meetings that I went to in the like mid-90s, it was amazing. You know, there were maybe three, 400 people. And now, you know, Autumn National oh. this year, San Diego. And I think last year when it was in Austin, I mean, there's thousands yeah. People, it seems like, or at least well over a thousand. It's yeah. amazing how much the organization has grown, and it really is a great networking opportunity. I'm trying to think. I don't remember when my first one was, but I think I went to all the annual meetings for the first, you know, seven or eight years of my career, and then I just kind of took a break because I was like, you know, it's the same people talking about the same stuff, and you know, I already had my network at that point. I had plenty of people to call, and then I went back after a number of years. And I reflected it just, it was actually, it was how much better dressed the crowd was than they were before. <laughs> and that ties into something I think Autumn does that's really useful. And that's the uh, salary survey that they do. Yes. I've heard that from some other universities Because, you well. know, that, I mean, it's an actual survey of the people who do the work. And it does have the problem that it's self-reported, um, which is always, you know, problematic in any sort of data. But, you know, it, 
there's no way it doesn't have a positive effect on you know the salaries of the people doing the work. And that's mostly because the people who probably get it and it shows that they're way above the curve, you know, they just throw it in the trash. <laughs> but, probably, the, but the people probably. who are, you know, legitimately not paid as well, um, you know, they can go take it to their, their boss and HR and say, and like I said, you know, retention of early staff is really difficult. And if you can go and show your human resources department that what you're paying your entry level staff is not sufficient. You know, that's data that they can work with. And, you know, at a big place like a medical center, I mean, we're used to doing that with nursing staff and technical exactly. staff all the time. And we're such a weird field that it's probably hard for them to get data otherwise. I would think so. Yeah, they they do a really good job on those studies, like you said, collecting data and providing resources for tech transfer offices in that regard. And they present it in such a, you know, it's they spread the data around every which way. And it's presented in such an unbiased way. It's a really useful thing that they do. Yeah. And they have some policy things that they do. I know recently they submitted to the patent office on the patenting of AI inventions and things like that, that, you know, they, they're very good at. um, Yeah. And that's something I don't give them enough credit for that because I I guess I probably almost take it for granted, but when, um, I don't know, what was it? Five or six years ago when was, there was a researcher at, I think the university of Georgia, and there was a big push. It was called like Faculty Bill of Rights. And there was a push, and it was with the Kauffman Foundation to have you know inventors own their own stuff. Yes. And you know, Autumn was a big voice for that because otherwise you would have just had a bunch of you know chattering tech transfer people like me and others speaking against a pretty well organized group. And it's helpful to have you know Autumn there, and they have all their pamphlets and things to hand out. And, Know, we've commercialized just this year this many thousand products. Exactly. You know, y'all be quiet. <laughs> so. <laughs> there you go. What about credentialing? Do you feel that makes a difference or is helpful for things like LES or registered yeah. tech transfer specialists? So, I mean, I'd say this as a, um, so I am a, um, a certified licensing professional, which was, you know, kind of run through LES. And I think LES is a great organization. Um, one of the things I love about LES is I go there and I'm not the only university person, but I'm one of only a few. And I learned so much from talking to people who do licensing. In, I've heard like, people rave about the just educational component yeah. about LES. I mean, you know, you go sit in a session and it's about, you know, licensing deals in the automobile tire industry, which sounds dumb, but, you know, they're dealing with the same issues that we have. And sometimes there's such a different ecosystem. It's like they've evolved different solutions that we can apply. Exactly. The creativity. That's yeah. something you wouldn't have thought yeah, to it's, apply it's, in your own situation. It's kind sure. of like, um, you know, how nature has found different ways to make animals succeed. You know, exactly. Like Australia has marsupials. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I do like LES and I, I do like the, uh, the CLP certification. When you look at what people have to do to qualify for it, you know, it's not a credential that says you're God's gift to licensing. But it does say that you've done a bare minimum of stuff. Exactly. And I was I was fortunate that I got um, grandfathered when that program started. Oh, really? Yeah. I went through and I was like, okay, cool. I have enough stuff to, you know, be in the the inaugural class. But I do remember a lot of colleagues kind of poo pooing it, and we're not going to do it. And I was like, I bet you don't qualify. Like you, <laughs> so you now may you not go do the work. Yeah. So you know, so they had to wait, and I don't know. Probably some have done the classes, and some haven't. What? Wh- how many? Is there a certain number of classes you have to take for that? I'm not familiar with. <laughs> I don't know. I've been grandfathered, but uh, <laughs> but it was um, you know you did have to um, work for an organization that made a certain amount of money, so many years in the field, so many deals done. It was really hard to just claim a bunch of you know, antibody licenses. They had to be real deals. Um, you had to provide professional references and things like that. So I do think some of the complainers just didn't qualify. That's what I assume. <laughs> That's too funny. All right, let's transition and say, if, you know, as we wrap up here, if you had three wishes for a Wake Forest Innovations, um, if you had a genie who you could rub a bottle and Santa. just grab it, yeah, exactly, and uh, give you three wishes, what would those be? Well, a big one would be um, just to ha- have periods of stability. Academic organizations are always, I mean, part of what makes academ- academia interesting and, and innovative with science is because, you know, we're not always stable. 
and we do jerk around and do stuff. But um, when you're running an administrative function, it's nice to have a period of stability where you can put SOPs in place and do things consistently and train staff in a certain way. And so that that's that would be my main wish. The other would be that, you know, I would love it if some of the drugs that we have in the clinic, you know, hit. Yeah. yeah. Because you, you um, having worked for an organization that had 90 to $100 million coming in the door, you have a different level of scrutiny on you when that's going on compared to when you're, you know, making 500000 to a million. So, although, you know, the, the, the heavy-duty scrutiny when you're not making money is not necessarily bad. It makes you uh, have good answers for the questions. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely is a different question, though. Yeah. And then the third is just, you know, the, for the funding and grant success of our faculty. Because, like I said, we're, we are a byproduct of what they do. You know, when they're excellent and are producing things and the research engine here is growing, you know, we have more to do and more exciting inventions and more exciting junior young faculty coming here, better grad students in the lab. And that's really what makes us go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's see if we can find you a genie in a bottle or Santa or something. So so. I hope so too. So, well, Dean, I can't thank you enough for all your time and your insights. It's really been a pleasure. Uh, If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you a couple of questions, where can they reach you? Sure. They can just shoot me an email. It's D as a Dean, S-T-E-L-L. So D-S-T-E-L-L at wakehealth, all one word, dot E-D-U. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Dean. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.